It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, November 17th, 2021. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, GuyBensonShow.com, our website, all the ways to listen live, major interviews, lots of resources, and, of course, the free podcast every day, GuyBensonShow.com. And in that intro, they say it's from the most powerful city in the world, which is Washington, D.C., where we are typically based. You might make an argument that at the moment... The most powerful city in the world is Hollywood, Florida, which is where we are sitting right now at the Hard Rock Hotel in advance of tonight's Patriot Awards exclusively on Fox Nation, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. It's going to be a lot of fun. I've got my ticket right here in my jacket pocket, and I'm excited just to take it all in. And here's the lineup on the radio today. As we go coast to coast, listen to this, and almost everyone here will be in person here in Florida. Joey Jones later this hour. Andy McCarthy by phone. He's following the Rittenhouse trial. And there was an interesting development earlier involving questions coming from the jury for the judge. What is the significance of that? What might be the significance of that? Andy McCarthy, a former prosecutor, will answer that question and more. Looking forward to hearing from Andy, who's on the news channel right now. Will Kane, Fox and Friends weekend host, he's part of this whole extravaganza down here. He will join us. At the end of the show, Tom Shalou, who is going to be one of sort of the, the top comedians here to warm up the crowd. He's hilarious. He will be here face to face probably lighten things up with him and then also in our final hour someone you may have heard of a little known talent here at fox news but he has a niche following a little niche tucker carlson host of tucker carlson tonight will be here live face to face in our 5 p.m happy hour looking forward to that as we get going let's bring you a fox news alert and the stats As we always do, COVID case count inside the United States, 42, check that, 47.2 million. That's all in. It's also a gross underestimate for the reasons that we have elucidated several times. The death toll in the United States from COVID, people dying of or with COVID, 764,592. The Dow is down nearly 200 points right now. Currently trading at 35,947, and we have roughly 50 minutes to go in the trading day, way up Route 95 in New York City. We're going to get to a lot of the news of the day, right? There's this debate in the House over censuring Congressman Gosar over a, a video that he put out on his social media. There's news on immigration. There is so much to get to. But what I want to start with is a little bit off the beaten path, but it's following through on a promise that I have made to this audience, 
which is when we think that there's a story that's really important, even after it is no longer under the brightest, hottest lights, we're going to keep following it because it matters. And we spent, as you can recall, regular listeners, we spent a lot of time covering Afghanistan and the debacle in Afghanistan under President Biden in that withdrawal. Totally shambolic, chaotic, disgraceful. And though it has largely slipped away out of headlines, you hear about it from time to time, there are still these ad hoc missions to try to save people and get them out of that Taliban-controlled country to this day, a lot of them being organized by private citizens, I should add. I want to make sure that we all remember what happened and guard aggressively against revisionism and gaslighting. Because we have heard, even during the teeth of that crisis in Afghanistan, we heard how many different times from the Biden administration, from the president himself, that everything was overblown, the problems weren't nearly as bad as people were saying, and in fact, overall, it was an extraordinary success. I want to remind you, you know in your bones that's not true. You know in your bones Not necessarily the policy, but the execution was the opposite of a success. It was a debacle. It was a bloody, deadly, shameful fiasco. And while they were telling us that it was a success, right, when they were out there putting on a brave, happy face, internally, they knew exactly what was going on. They recognized how disastrous it was. And I know that there was an argument or a storyline, really a fairy tale, on the left, that the media was just being too tough on Biden. This is my favorite thing. When Democrats claim that the media is biased against them, you know that they are really struggling, that they are flailing and failing, because the media, 80, 90% of the time, are their allies, if not their co-conspirators. When the facts on the ground or reality is bad enough that the media is actually giving tough, hostile coverage to Democrats, they whine like stuck pigs because they feel like it's their friends who should know better, their friends who shouldn't betray them this way, who are giving them a harder time. Afghanistan was one of those examples, and you had in sort of the left-wing press and the left-wing social media sphere, people actually trying to argue that this was a media failure and not a substantive failure. And on that front, let me read to you somewhat extensively from this new piece in Politico. I want you to hear this, and I want you to hear it from the words coming from the Biden State Department and people who work at the State Department themselves. While publicly... Their spokespeople and officials all the way up to the president himself were trying to pretend that this was going well, that they had planned things well, and it was being executed competently. Here's the headline in Politico. And again, this story is out today. This experience broke a lot of people. That's a quote. Inside state, meaning the State Department, amid the Afghanistan withdrawal. The chaos that came with ending America's longest war extended to Foggy Bottom, where staff were left with psychological scars. Let me read from the story now. 
in the days after the Taliban took Kabul in August, a desperate Afghan father pleaded over the phone with a State Department official to help get his family out of harm's way. On the call, the Washington, D.C.-based state official, manning the phone on half a world away from the turmoil, could hear pounding on the man's door. The Taliban. You could hear them in the background. You could hear the women in the house screaming. It was awful, the official said in an interview. It's so scary. You don't know if you're going to be on the phone with someone when they get shot. You don't know if the email you're getting from that person is going to be the last email from them. Think about that. Think about being on the phone with someone where the terrorists are literally beating down their door. And you can hear it. And you can hear the cries and the fear. And you can do nothing about it because your administration has absolutely no handle on the situation whatsoever. Back to the story. Over the course of several weeks, conversations like that one played out on repeat, thousands a week, as State Department employees scrambled to respond to the urgent pleas for help from those looking to flee Afghanistan. The Biden administration, like most everyone, was surprised by how rapidly the Afghan government fell to the Taliban. Confusion reigned in the region as well as in Foggy Bottom. So these are the best and brightest. These are the people running the show. And the way it's described here is that confusion reigned. And that was obvious to anyone who was watching this play out with people clinging to airplanes and falling to their deaths because they were so desperate not to fall under terrorist rule. And publicly, remember that interview that Biden did in the middle of it with George Stephanopoulos? where he made all sorts of assertions that turned out to be false. Hey, don't worry about it. Oh, the people falling off the plane, that was a few days ago. That's old news. Extraordinary success, he said, in one of these nationally televised speeches. Well, back to the Politico story. And again, we have to remember this. We're not going to let the media just let go of this and put it in the rearview mirror. The disaster is still unfolding right now. There are thousands of Americans still stuck in Afghanistan. We promised you we were never going to let go of this so long as that was the case, and we're following through on that promise. This story is unbelievable in Politico. Interviews with more than half a dozen State Department employees, in addition to government officials and advocates, as well as a review of internal emails obtained by Politico. So a lot of this is like written down and memorialized in real time. And they got it through the Freedom of, uh, of Information Act. These emails and these interviews, quote, reveal the desperation and disorganization that consumed frontline State Department employees as they feverishly attempted to assist Afghans and Americans stranded in the war-torn country and fielded a crush of calls and emails. The inbox where the State Department directed Afghans to send special immigrant visa applications crashed at least once. Remember, they had months and months and months to plan for this. They could have delayed it. They chose not to do those things, and then they tried to gaslight the rest of the world that, oh, it's really not so bad, and they had this thing under control. Obviously, manifestly, they did not, and this is just yet more proof, not from our eyes and ears, but inside the Biden administration. That's why this story is so amazing to me. Officials say they were unclear of their own authority and what policies they were allowed to employ to help evacuate people. This all triggered mental health issues for some staffers 
from which some are still attempting to recover months later. Their stories are a testament to the U.S. government's lack of preparedness for the cratering security situation, even as President Biden pushed through his decision to withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan by August 31st. And remember, I will add, he told George Stephanopoulos, so long as there were Americans still in harm's way in Afghanistan, we were not going to leave. Then he turned right around and left with thousands of Americans and tens of thousands of our allies stuck there. Quote, this experience broke a lot of people, including me, a State Department official said. We were all getting inundated by personal requests to help specific people from everyone we'd ever known or worked with. And we were powerless to do anything, really. Feeling like you're supposed to be the government's 911, but knowing the call for help didn't go very far beyond you was extremely demoralizing. It was, as yet another state official put it, like we were throwing grains of sand into the ocean. So they go on to describe some of the me- like mental breakdowns that these people had because of the failures that they were kind of the, the faces of in some ways, while officials were out there lying. People would just meet in these unofficial groups to get together and cry. Of course, these are not the real victims of, of, of Afghanistan. The real victims are the Americans left behind. The real victims are the women and girls being subjugated. The real victims are the allies of the United States to whom we pledged our sacred honor and then just gave it up in the blink of an eye, who have now been retaliated against, if not murdered by the Taliban. Those are the real victims. But also, imagine being a State Department person who really wants to do a good job, wants to make a difference in the world, wants to represent the United States of America well, and this is what comes crashing down, and you can't do anything about it even though it's your whole job. I wonder what they felt like watching Biden go on TV and call it a success. Last quote from this story, and it's one of these officials that Politico quotes. We're not used to failure at the State Department, and in every single possible circumstance... This was a failure. You're failing with the email. You're failing with getting guidance on what we could do and could not do. We weren't empowered. No one really understood what our policy was, end quote. Listen to how devastating that is. In every single possible circumstance, it was failure. That's the quote. And yet, here was President Biden in the midst of all of that. To you, the American people, cut 23. The extraordinary success of this mission was due to the incredible skill, bravery, and selfless courage of the United States military and our diplomats and intelligence professionals. For weeks, they risked their lives to get American citizens, Afghans who helped us, citizens of our allies and partners and others on board planes and out of the country. And they did it, facing a crush of enormous crowds seeking to leave the country. An extraordinary success. I would say, come on, man, but that seems too glib, given what happened. Given the fallout. That continues to this day. We told you we were going to keep on this story, and we're going to. In the meantime... From Hollywood, Florida, and the Hard Rock, it's the Patriot Awards tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, on Fox Nation. 
Leading up to that, what a lineup. As I mentioned at the top, Joey Jones, Andy McCarthy, Will Kane, Tom Shalou, Tucker Carlson, all ahead. We're just getting started. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Don't go anywhere. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm Guy Benson, live from the Patriot Awards in Florida. Thanks for listening to the Guy Benson Show. I meant to get to this yesterday, but Goldman Sachs has a projection that inflation isn't going anywhere and it's going to get worse before it gets better. And this is going to play out well into next year. So transitory is just gone, right? That talking point is obliterated. The White House stuck with it for as long as they could, and then it just expired. right? These competent folks who want us to believe them on everything else. And just their own spin is debunked by reality, sometimes in a matter of days or weeks, sometimes hours, frankly. Larry Summers, who's a top Democratic economist, Clinton administration, Obama administration, he very publicly warned the Democrats about inflation months ago. He's like, you know, maybe we shouldn't do all of this stuff. Maybe we should be a little concerned about this. And he was basically laughed off by Team Biden. What does he know? Well, apparently he knew some things. And now... Perhaps they're kicking themselves that they didn't listen to him. But here's what's interesting. In today's New York Times, there's an op-ed from Stephen Ratner. Is that a familiar name? It should be. He was another top economic advisor and official in the Obama administration. Ratner. Headline, I warned the Democrats about inflation. And he goes through talking about this pain, talking about prices going up, talking about how The transitory line is ludicrous at this point. And explaining that he was another one of the voices in this chorus saying, hey, let's uh, slow our roll here maybe a little bit. This is not the right path to be pursuing. But people like Summers and Ratner were ignored. And now what do we have? We have the same people who ignored them insisting and reassuring the rest of us, oh, no, the next thing... That will work and needs to happen is spending trillions more in new money. It's all paid for. It costs nothing. But even if it does cost much more than nothing and it's not all paid for, then who really cares? Ignore the CBO. We need to do it anyway. It'll bring down inflation, all the new spending. It is incoherent. They're not even listening to their own experts, the people who claim to fetishize expertise. It's The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. I'm Guy Benson. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, the website. Podcast always free. We are joined on set here in Florida by Joey Jones, retired Marine Fox News contributor, Fox Nation host. He's here, of course, as we all are for the Patriot Awards tonight. And Joey, before we get into more serious stuff, I'm still waiting. I don't know about you. I'm still waiting for my World Series ring. 
from the Atlanta Braves, your Atlanta Braves, because we were there together for the turnaround of that season, in my humble opinion. Was that your first Braves game? It was. Then you were the good luck charm, because that's the difference maker. Wait, wait, hang on, hang on. Correction, it was my second Braves Uh game. I threw out the first pitch the night before. Okay, this is the first season. Yes. So you've only attended the Braves in a championship season. And they were sort of on a bit of a, a schneid, as they say. I show up. We I'm show up. You turned it around. They win the series against St. Louis. Boom, World Series champions. The rest is history. We're now getting you know real, uh, real movement in the ratings at our great affiliate down in Atlanta, <laughs> Extra. And I feel like it all started that weekend. <laughs> I think so, too. You know, you can buy Brave stock and be an owner. It's a, it's a publicly traded team, the only one. They should at least gift you an ownership. Right? Just one, one stock, oh. one share. Do I become an owner of there the Braves? There you go. That's, I'm just or do I get the ring? Or both. I, I, these are not necessarily mutually exclusive. I'm, I'm not big on jewelry. Like, I've got this little bracelet my daughter gave me. That's about it. I don't need a ring. I've got a wedding me, ring. That's all. Give me some ownership. Give me a stock certificate. <laughs> I think that's fair. <laughs> I want to, not to kill the mood too much here, Joey, but I opened the show just, you know, half an hour ago with this Politico story out today about Afghanistan. And it's describing the tumult and the anger and the despair inside our State Department as they're getting inundated with requests to try to help people. They don't even know what their own policies are, what their authorities are. And there was a quote from one of these officials saying it was at every level of failure. And I juxtaposed that with President Biden coming out and saying this was an extraordinary success. And what's angry, it's like it's not just looking back and saying that was a disgrace and just sort of scoring points against Biden, it is a disgrace. There are still lots of people stuck there and folks doing the heavy lifting to try to keep America's promises to this day are private citizens trying to cobble together efforts because the government won't. And I know this was something you were extremely passionate about while that fiasco was front and center, and I know it's still personal for you. Yeah, you know, I testified before Congress this morning uh, with the uh, Oversight Committee, Subcommittee uh, uh, for National Security. And it, the, the purpose of that congressional hearing was to say, should we investigate veteran suicide? And uh, aptly, one of the Republican members brought it back to what happened in Afghanistan and said, listen, you know, this is the, the most recent example of a failure from and administration failing our veterans and failing our service members. And, and I bring that up because it's fresh in my mind, and the emotional side of it is very fresh in my mind, because what I testified today about, about a good friend of mine who killed himself um, is with me every single day. Mm. And so we lose 13 heroes in an evacuation, and then you have leaders go call it a, a success. You have a Marine general sit in front of the world and, and say, our Taliban partners. Um, and it's very difficult as an American private citizen now to reconcile these things. And I think the best, the most encompassing statement is, it may have been an absolute extreme success of an airlift, but it was that much the same a failure of an evacuation. And those are two different things. And I think it's important that we continue to say that. There are 60 service members who have family members in Afghanistan that our State Department says do not qualify to be evacuated. That was released this week as well. 60 service members. Now, most of these are, are naturalized Afghanis who came here as interpreters, so they took took advantage of this visa program in the years past, then decided to join our military and go back and fight for what is now their new country, the United States. Quite a heroic thing, if you ask me. And their family members don't meet the, don't meet the precipice to be pulled back in this evacuation. 
but 100,000 other people do, people that, that did nothing more than stormed an airfield, got a seat on an airplane. And it's not just to bring them back to the States. Most of those people went to a third country first. That's right. And so you're telling me we had no place in plan or no plan in place just to get family members of service members out of the country, away from the Taliban, yes. then decide what happens but, with them. But that is what happened. Exactly. We, we did not have that plan. It's, it's, and it's still blood boiling. And you're rubbing salt in the wound to ignore it and to stand on that podium, whether you're the President of the United States or a press secretary or you know, one of the punchable faces at the State Department. I yeah. swear they, they hired the most punchable people. In the, but, and you say this was a tremendous success. Uh, we have no Americans left behind. We have a couple hundred Americans left behind. We don't know how many Americans we have left behind. Yeah. And that progression um, is it, very frustrating. But I'll, I'll leave it with this. I know uh, time's of the essence. But I, I had a friend that just came back a few weeks ago. And his words to me, he's a former Green Beret, actually worked for the CIA for a little while. He has kind of a Jason Bourne story, to be honest with you. Over the summer, he was down in South America rescuing uh, trafficked people and bringing them back to mostly Mexico, where they had been trafficked further south. He's seen the worst of it. He worked in Africa, counter-slavery operations. He was over there trying to exfil people. And what he told me was that was the worst thing he's ever seen because for the first time in his life, he felt like not only that the United States government would not help him, but, they, but that the State Department was actively working against his efforts. Mm. And he said it was the scariest thing he's ever seen. One more question on this because the point that you just made a moment ago, I hadn't really – considered that much it it you know flickers occasionally but when you think about the failures there and you think about the administration the timeline the lack of planning the people that we failed the people who are horrified who are stuck there the human rights abuses that are happening there's another side of this which is our veterans and our active duty men and women who poured themselves into that country who did so much in that country and to see it go the way that it did in just sort of shocking, humiliating fashion, where this country was humiliated on a world stage, where we basically made a choice to betray people and to break our word to a lot of folks. People had dedicated years of their lives. People died for this. People surrendered limbs. You know, people really and have PTSD from what they did over there to build something that was just wiped away in a flash. And the leaders who made the decision can't even really have the guts to talk honestly about it. That's another betrayal in this whole thing, a betrayal of the men and women who truly put themselves in harm's way and tried to do the right thing. You know what's funny about this? I was in the Allen Bar surge of 2007 and eight. I was in the Helmand surge of 2009 and 10. I've been a part of two of the of the greatest battle victories in the war against terror. Those two surges worked to perfection. Uh, General Petraeus walked through Fallujah without any body armor on just weeks after they started the surge in Alambar. In Helmand, the exact same thing happened with our unit commander um, doing it with CBS Evening News uh, in a place that was literally on fire just weeks before. We were able to push out our enemy doing what our military does. Our military won every battle, and our government has lost every war since basically this started. On that cheerful note, I want to move to another very serious issue here at home. <clears throat> Excuse me. We were just chatting about it during the break. It's this trial in Wisconsin 
and you are something of an expert on self-defense and firearms, much more so than I am. As you watch the prosecution attempt, they've, of course, you know, they've rested their case. The jury could come back at any minute. They're deliberating. But you look at the way not just the prosecution but just a lot of the commentariat in the country is framing issues like self-defense. You saw the prosecutor holding that gun the way that he did in the courtroom. Even I knew there were a few things technically wrong with the way he did that. Um, I just wonder what some of your takeaways have been so far watching this trial and what you think people at home ought to know. My, my biggest fear is that this case somehow sets a, a reverse precedent for Second Amendment rights in the state of Wisconsin and across the country. Um, did Kyle Rittenhouse do everything right? I don't think anyone in this country that's watched this closely – would sit here and say, man, there's a lot of things he, he that were not wise decisions, that were not smart decisions. Mm-hmm. But he's on trial for what happened in split-second moments. And I think the defense did a good job arguing that. And on Fox, we've had... Boy, a- and, and just, just to buttress that point, the charges against him are not poor judgment. Well, that's exactly right. The charges right. against him are murder. And so it's important to me, even if I think, even if I think to myself, and I'm not saying this is my full opinion, because I'm, only the jurors and the people... Administra- or prosecuting this case know all the details, really. I mean, we haven't, I haven't sat and watched every single second and, and heard everything that the judge has said to the jury. But outside the jurors, we sit here, we watch it, and we try to make an opinion so we understand when this comes down, why, so we can apply it to our own lives and know how it affects our rights. You have the right to carry a gun in most states. You have a right to carry a gun in that state, open carry. And you have a right to defend yourself. The things that the prosecution was saying, things like when you bring a gun, you forfeit the right to self-defense, that makes no sense at all. That's not true and, legally at all. And that's very dangerous because you're trying to set a precedent through this case that anyone that uses a gun in self-defense against someone who didn't already have a gun is somehow a culprit. Listen, we don't carry guns to make things equal for our perpetrator. We carry guns to hope to have the upper advantage. I mean, that's the, that's the whole point of self-defense, is to be able to defend yourself and to defeat whoever's coming after you. I don't know what the jury's going to come out and say, but with the facts in front of me, there are a lot of stupid people that do legal things. And this seems to me like uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was a 17-year-old naive kid who probably thought he was doing something fun and cool and righteous, and that um, he... he he got called on it. I mean, I mean, and two people are yeah. dead. There you go. But that does not make him a murderer either. No, he defended himself. In my opinion, he legally defended himself. And here's the deal: I don't care if he was a police officer. If someone charges you with ill intent and you have a weapon, you have the right to use or that. Points weapon. a gun at you, which was what happened it, to one of these it, guys. If either one of those people took that gun away from him, then he would be responsible for what they did with that gun. So he has a legal and moral responsibility to ensure he maintains possession well, and, of that weapon. And one of them who was trying to take the weapon from him was exactly. verbally threatening to kill him. I don't know how, I don't know how this comes down as murder. I think adding the lesser charges uh, is pretty much the, the prosecution showing, hey, we understand that he utilized self-defense, so now we're trying to get him on making bad decisions prior to, and I just don't know the jury's going to go for that either. Joey Jones, we are here in Hollywood, Florida at the Hard Rock for the Patriot Awards tonight. I keep mentioning it because it is uh, a huge event this evening. Massive numbers of people, thousands of people are going to be here, 8 p.m. Eastern, exclusively on Fox Nation. If you're not here in the venue, which is it looks really cool, the stage looks amazing, uh, what's your role tonight? And how is it walking around 
like you've got to be a superstar here among <laughs> among these people. You're like an A-lister. It's humbling to say the least. There may only be 3,000 people in this country that call themselves fans of me, but if that's the <laughs> they're case, all here. they're all here. <laughs> and it's the most humbling thing I've ever experienced in my life. I am a uh, Georgia boy who fought a couple of wars, accidentally got injured, and I talk for a living now. I'm no one special, uh, but I carry responsibility when people walk up and they say, I appreciate what you have to say. You're speaking for me. And I've heard that once. I've heard it a hundred times this week. And, uh, and it means something to be here. I think this is as important for us as people who get to go on television and speak for this country as it is for the fans that are here uh, to enjoy it. It's important for us to stop, say hello, listen to what they have to say, and understand the responsibility we have in our jobs. And uh, this week has been phenomenal at reminding me that, and it's been a lot of fun. Well, that's very well said. And we'll see you tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, foxnation.com, the Patriot Awards. And my guest is undeniably a patriot. Joey Jones, retired Marine, Fox News contributor, a colleague, a friend of ours here. Joey, great to see you in person. Yeah, it's always fun. It's rare, but it's fun. I feel like I need to take you to a Yankees game next year, and maybe then they'll <laughs> win a World Series again. You know what? Every time they score a home run, I'll do a tomahawk chop for them, okay? Is that all right? I mean, hey, if it works, it works. <laughs> Listen, right? the, last, the last time the Braves won the World Series, the Yankees won four out of the next five. So Yankees fans should be happy right That now. is accurate. 96, 98, 99, 2000. After you guys won in 95. Oh, I like that. I'm going to write that one down. I'm going to text my dad. I don't know if that's quite how it works, but I'm going to go with it. Joey Jones, great to see you. Thanks for having me. The Guy Benson Show, back after this short break. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. Three of our last four shows have originated from Florida. That's fun. Maybe we'll see Ron DeSantis around later, the governor here. I have a bone to pick with him. Some of my friends from New York keep moving to Florida. We're losing them from New York. I understand why. I think he'd be very happy to have that conversation if I had to guess. Now, today has not been uh, the most uplifting first hour, talking about Afghanistan and some of these tough issues. Here's another one, but we have to look at this stuff. We have to confront it. Associated Press today reporting that more than 100,000 Americans died from drug overdoses in the last year. A majority of those deaths were fueled by fentanyl. And the AP in their write-up acknowledges that some of these deaths are, of course, tied to the pandemic and to the lockdowns, frankly. I think one of the failures of our elites and our experts over the last year, year and a half, is an adamant refusal to grapple with the reality of trade-offs. We can have a conversation about policy trade-offs and which side should get more weight in a conversation, but so much of the messaging has refused to acknowledge at least a large portion, if not half or more than half of the equation. And how often do we see this? We see this with kids in schools. We see it with Abuse in homes, domestic abuse. You see it in the form and and manifesting in people who delayed necessary medical care on other fronts, pushing off testing and early detection for cancer and that sort of thing. These are all real things that happen when you impose as a society the kinds of restrictions that were imposed. And in some cases still are. And then there's this. 100,000-plus deaths in this country 
from drug overdoses in one year. It's the highest ever. It's not close. And I think that if we're being honest, which we often are not, right, let's just be clear about that. We are often not being honest with ourselves, perhaps sometimes intentionally so. But if we're being honest about that, there is some number, an unknowable number, but there is some number of that 100,000 overdose deaths that are absolutely COVID deaths. They didn't die of COVID, but in some ways they died from COVID. And the from COVID comes in the form of these restrictions that people insisted were the right thing to do, made us all do. And again, I'm not saying that in every case they were wrong. What bothers me, to reiterate, is their total lack of interest in entertaining the notion that this could be harmful. Because I guess they thought we were too naive or stupid to have an adult conversation about it. So they wanted to keep their messaging clean or whatever. There's nothing clean about 100,000 drug overdose deaths in this country in one year. USA Today in their write-up of this, noting it's the most ever recorded in a one-year span, providing one of the first pictures of the impact of stay-at-home orders many states implemented in mid to late March 2020. Some people in recovery struggle to maintain sobriety, while others turn to drugs to cope. We have to look at this. We have to have that conversation. An absolutely gutting stat today on overdoses, and it plays into COVID. It also plays into the border crisis on fentanyl. That's another subject that we'll get to later. It's the Guy Benson Show. New hour coming up. Will Kane is here. That's straight ahead. Stay with us. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show live from Florida, Hollywood to be specific. The Hard Rock, the Patriot Awards tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, foxnation.com, the exclusive place to watch. GuyBensonShow.com is our website here. The podcast free of charge every single day. If you miss a moment, you miss a lot. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour of three. The Dow closes down today, 210 points, ending at 35,931. Well, joining me now right here in our makeshift on-air location, we'll call it a studio, but it's not really a studio it's our friend and colleague, Will Kane, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend, Saturday and Sunday, 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Of course, he's also host of the Will Kane podcast, available at foxnewspodcasts.com, as is our podcast. And, Will, it's great to see you again. Thanks for doing this. Great to see you, Guy. So I want to start on a depressing note for both of us with a short debate. Which of our college football teams is worse right now? I don't. I must confess, I don't know Northwestern, and I do know your college program. I do not know Northwestern's record as we speak, Cap. but it cannot be much worse. It cannot be worse than the University of Texas. It cannot be worse than losing to 1-8 Kansas, who was a 30-point underdog at home. At home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're bad. We're coming off a good season. Which you're not really, right? So, like, our expectations were low. Texas expectations are always Texas-sized. Is this finally the year? Is Texas finally back? They had that, you know, that moment 
in the OU game where it's like, all right, this might be it. And then, you know, we saw how that went down. I don't want to pour salt in the wound, but misery loves company, Will. And so when I feel like one of the blue bloods can share in the wallowing failure of our program, I, I just had to ask the question, mean-spirited as it may have been. <laughs> Well, there's so much in there that is salt in the wound. Um, the fact that you call us blue blood still, I'm going to take as a compliment, and one of the reasons so many people hate the I mean, university. There's a purple of Texas. blood at this point, right? And then there's that. Um, and I don't like the comparisons to Northwestern. I don't think we belong in the same conversation. And for that reason, is the reason that people hate Texas. Yes, yeah. we are very full of ourselves, and currently have no reason to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would also say you don't belong in that conversation. Certainly not on graduation rates or anything like that. Uh, so, <laughs> Will Kane, let's stick with Texas, but move on from football and i will give you a shout out even though i'm a giants fan your cowboys are looking pretty good this really year, good. right so that that's really and i know that you've been a you've been standing the quarterback dak for a while now like you you planted your flag with this guy i did and i appreciate you're, and you're, you're you for doing a, like a little that. bit of a victory lap this season oh, for the haters it's gonna be a long year for my haters <laughs> yeah yeah it's gonna be a keep long coming. year <laughs> so let's talk about um another texan robert francis O'Rourke, better O'Rourke. He's announced that he's running for yet another thing now, right? So his Senate raised a mountain of money. It wasn't enough. And a big Democrat year gave Ted Cruz a bit of a scare, but not really. There were three or four points. Then he runs for president, crashes and burns at that. Uh, but in the process of doing so, he ran way out over there to the left. Now he wants to come back home to Texas and run for governor. And I saw, and I'm almost wondering, like, is this too soon to start dropping this stuff on him? Like, wait till he gets the nomination. But I know that they're already showering the guy with money. Because if there's one thing that libs love, it's just burning money in the form of sending it to Beto O'Rourke in Texas. So they're, they're at it again. Here is a podcast that Beto was on right around what, summer 2020. I don't think this would fly if he were running for governor of New York or Washington State or even Oregon. But this is what he said last year, cut 20. I, I really love that uh, Black Lives Matters and uh, other protesters have put this front and center to defund, you know, these line items that have over-militarized our, our police and instead invest that money in the human capital of, of your community. Make sure that you have the services, the help, the support, the health care necessary to be well and not require police intervention. And then also in, in some necessary cases, completely dismantling those police forces and rebuilding them. And he went on to praise Minneapolis for their attempt to completely defund and dismantle the police department, saying that was necessary. Of course, Minneapolis has been backpedaling desperately ever since. But this was Beto coming out for defunding the police on a podcast when he was trying to appeal you know, to a certain constituency. Now he wants to come back to Texas. You're like, oh, yeah, remember me? I want to be your governor. I just want to get your thoughts on the Beto candidacy. Like, what is this guy doing? Does he have some compulsion to always be running for something? And does he forget that we have this stuff on tape? from what he said last year as he tries to look to a, a Republican state in probably a Republican year. It just seems ill-conceived. Robert Francis O'Rourke, DOA, his campaign, his candidacy, dead on arrival. He has zero chance to win the governorship of Texas. He's so craven. He's so desperate. And it, and it reads, Guy. It, 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 it breathes. It, it comes through his skin. Mm -hmm. He wants so badly to be 
affirmed by someone. Will somebody please affirm Robert Francis O'Rourke? Will somebody give him a vote? He's Gen X Beto. I'm Gen X, so I know what Gen X is. He's Are Gen you? X Beto. Yeah. Huh. And you know that guy, guy that uh, goes in six-month cycles? I'm super into archery for six months, yeah. and then I'm super into skateboarding. What happened to your archery equipment? It's in the garage. And then after skateboarding, he's super into, I don't know what's next, crafting. This is Beto. He's into being in a garage band. He's into, I think he was into skateboarding. Um, yep. He, he's into running for senator, then president, then governor. He is... Honestly, and, and I'm saying this now not as a shot. I'm saying this as, quite honestly, as armchair psychiatrist. I think he's a little sad. He needs affirmation, and, and he's looking for it somewhere outside. But there might be some consistent passions here, too, right? Like a passion for losing. <laughs> I was going to say, what is it, man? What's his policy passion, to your point on defund the police, that was grounded in some principle? Maybe gun control. He's been pretty consistent on gun control. Well, it- confiscation too which he yeah. doubled down on yesterday it's like right. all right welcome to texas gun confiscation and defund the police and his social an media issue. video which he said hey can we put divisive issues like critical race theory behind us so we can get to some things that we all agree on like legalizing marijuana <laughs> i'm not sure that polls at 100 percent in texas <laughs> and i also am always fascinated by people who at least profess a profound belief in both confiscating guns and defunding the police Right, right. That so, who who's left to defend anyone? Then it plays right into the Rittenhouse. I was going to say it does. You can't defend yourself, and there will be no police there to defend. Then you. what? So the, he's on. So am I supposed to ignore the logic? Then you are on the side of the rioter. You are on the side of the vandalizer. You are on the side of the criminal. You want no law enforcement. You want no self protection. What do you want? Destruction. You mentioned CRT, quoting Beto. It's too divisive. Let's not talk about it. They don't want to talk about it because. They support it while insisting that it's not happening. Right? Right, it's it's right. another incoherence. So there's a woman that I have known a little bit through the years, not very well, Tara Setmeyer. Uh, she was a Republican at one point. She's now a Lincoln Project type. And she was on The View. And I'm going to get your reaction to this. I know you've got to run in just a second. But Tara Setmeyer on The View. You're a parent. Listen to Cut 19. Democrats are very bad at arguing, and Republicans are very good at fueling and manufacturing outrage. So it's the new Southern strategy. Absolutely. So it's all based on race. We at the Lincoln Project pointed that out in the Virginia race. The critical race theory is the new N-word for Republicans and the the Southern strategy in 2021. But Democrats have to have a good comeback. That's more than enough there. So uh, critical race theory is the new N-word, Will. So... I know Tara. You know Tara. We all actually work together, the three of us. We were probably on set together at Real News at the Blaze. Um, I'm really taken aback. I'm shocked that this is where Tara is. I'm shocked that anyone is at this place where you can dismiss critical race theory, first of all, as a legitimate complaint and pretend that it doesn't exist, which right. is just a lie. But then to, then to call those parents that care about the education of their children, and quite honestly, in my mind, defend the idea of a colorblind society. Defend the idea of not having your children indoctrinated into a racist ideology that, that prioritizes segregation. To then in turn call those people ones who would look to and su- su- supplant the, the N-word with some new fangled term, and that's all that CRT is, is just an insult to not only everyone's intelligence, but our morality in this country as well. It's not going to work either. And no. it didn't work in Virginia. Like, well, let's just call them racists harder, louder. Yeah. Good luck. Will Kane. it is great to see you in Thanks, person. Thanks, man. All the way down here. here in Florida, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend, the Will Kane podcast. He's got a lot going on. Great to see you, sir. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Guy. It's the Guy Benson Show. We will be right back. 
The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. Back live from Hollywood, Florida. Appreciate you being here. So if you are watching Fox News Channel at the moment, there's a little box at the bottom right of the screen tracking what is currently actively right now a vote on the House of Representatives floor on the question of censuring Congressman Gosar of Arizona, a Republican, Paul Gosar. And the reason that this is a debate and the vote is happening is that he put on his social media not a few days ago this meme. It was a video that depicted in this cartoon way him attacking physically AOC and I think President Biden. He kills AOC in the video. And I guess he thought that this was, you know, funny or clever or whatever. It has been a a big news story nationally because of the uh, civility question and you look at you know violence and threats that have been directed at members of congress this is obviously not something that we should accept in our country and so there's now this censure vote underway and gosar also has a bit of a history of objectionable decisions appearances comments that he's made Uh, some of the stuff has been actually pretty reprehensible so i carry no brief for Congressman Gosar. I don't have a strong opinion on the censure vote. I'd probably, I think it should be censured. I mean, you shouldn't do this. We should be able to have higher standards than this. We should not have members of Congress putting out there on social media cartoon videos of them murdering other members of Congress, right? Come on. And I get, you know, it's just a meme. It's not real. It's a jokey thing. It was not intended to be a call to violence. I think that's all true. But I also think... It's not something that's okay. And you think about some people who are unhinged. I think of, for example, the man, the leftist, if I recall correctly, a big Bernie guy, big left-wing guy, who tried to murder as many Republicans as he could a few years ago at their baseball practice, and he almost murdered Steve Scalise. Like, I, I don't think that if some Democrat put out a video where even jokingly Steve Scalise got shot or harmed by someone physically that, you know, I think a lot of conservatives would be very up in arms. I don't think they would be dismissing it or poo-pooing it. So let's just try to have some consistency. And this is a gross thing. You know, censure is really, uh, frankly, a slap on the wrist. But that's what's underway right now in the House of Representatives. It looks like there are some Republicans crossing over uh, and voting for the censure. Some people I saw there was at least one present vote. However you feel about that, hopefully we can agree that there are certain things that should be out of bounds. Another example, because I was asked about this on Howie Kurtz's show, Media Buzz, on Sunday. I joined the show. And it was another major media story. And I'm going somewhere with this, by the way, in case you were curious, in case you were worried, I'm going somewhere with this. But it was a major media story that the 13 House Republicans who voted in favor of the bipartisan infrastructure bill a few Fridays ago, they have faced a torrent of abuse, threats, and attacks. And some of the audio of these voicemails and stuff have made it into the leaked into the press. We've heard them. I know one news organization went and tracked down some of the people who left these really over-the-top, profane messages and they were like yeah i did nothing to apologize for like i think our politics has gotten uglier and coarser 
I also think some of the pearl clutching, as if this is one-sided or completely brand new, is a bit much as well. I'm so old that I remember back during the uh, tax cuts debate in 2017, a bunch of Republicans got phone calls and these types of threatening messages all the time about tax cuts that were supposedly going to kill people. That's what Nancy Pelosi said. People would die because of the tax cuts. It was Armageddon. And people started working the phones and going crazy. And by the way, it looks like that vote has now gone final, 223 to 207. One present vote, two Republicans voting yay on the Gosar censure. So that's just sort of a footnote here on the day. I think if you're against something that's being done in the political realm, you have every right to be angry, to speak your mind, to show up at school board meetings, for example, to call members of Congress. What you should not do is threaten harm. Right? I would hope that 99% of us, regardless of our political orientation, would agree with that. And it does indeed go in both directions. Pretending otherwise is absurd. Only partisans say, oh, we don't do that, only they do that. No, there are bad people who will both, and I don't want to both sides this or what about this. It just happens to be true. And in this case, it's conservatives angry at their own party, and we've heard you know, some of the, some of the clips on all of that. Now, the reason that I bring this up is because I want to tell you about a story that is not, to my knowledge, and I haven't seen a massive amount of hand-wringing, right, and you know, blanket, breathless coverage of concern from the mainstream media about something extremely similar, right? So you've got the Gosar video. You've got the phone calls to members on uh, infrastructure, And if we're consistent saying no threats, this is bad, and when they do arise, it's some sort of national civility crisis, and we've got to take it very seriously. We've got to shower a lot of media attention on it to make sure that we draw a line in the sand as a society. Okay, fine. I'm on board for that. How about this one? From the Daily Wire, the judge in the Rittenhouse trial has received hundreds of vile messages and threats in the last few weeks including wishing, quote, most heinous homicide on him, the judge, and on his kids. People are angry. People on the left are whipping up, I would argue, a lot of misinformation about this trial. Storylines that are totally misplaced or don't apply. They're angry because they're losing on the merits. They're losing on the evidence. So they've decided on the left in some circumstances, to now start scapegoating the judge already. Or the whole system. We've seen headlines, Associated Press, what really is a fair trial? Because, of course, in the left's mind, they never lose fairly. So the judge has put his thumb on the scale, they think. And because it's such a high-profile case, this judge, who's just out there, I think, doing a pretty good job, keeping the prosecution in line when they've pulled some really outrageous stunts, this judge is now getting threats to his own life and threats to the life of his family and children. Now, do I apply that to the entire left? Of course not. My question is, why is this not a huge national story as opposed to a few headlines in right-leaning media, like the Daily Wire? We're mentioning it here. This is the most high-profile trial in the country right now. Networks have been covering it wall-to-wall for hours on end. This judge is now controversial. He's getting all these threats. I would say death threats to judges is a pretty significant threat 
I would argue, by and large, to our entire criminal justice system. Violent threats against the family of a judge. And yet, strangely, the media that is all Gosar all the time, and I've made my point clear on Gosar, they're mostly crickets on this judge. Some threats are different than others, it seems. Not all threats are created equal. And I think the double standard can be explained by politics. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are halfway through this show, halfway through the week on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. From Hollywood, Florida, and the Patriot Awards tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, Fox Nation exclusively. Our website here at the program, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free. We welcome back to the airwaves. He's doing a lot all over TV and radio, and we appreciate it. Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor. Andy, thanks for making some time for us. I know you're very busy with these trials. Guy, great to talk to you, and congratulations on what you guys are doing tonight. I think that's great. Thank you very much, Andy. Let's talk about an interesting development today. There was you know, a news alert and some breathless coverage. The jury had questions for the judge amid their deliberations in the Rittenhouse trial. What did they ask? What does that tell you? Because I know sometimes people try to read tea leaves about what a jury might be thinking overall based on the questions that they ask. Is it unusual for juries to ask for clarification? What can you elucidate for us? It's a usual thing, Guy, for juries to send notes out during the deliberation. Here they seem to have homed in on what the main issue is. There really aren't that many factual disputes in this record, but the the main one is whether Rittenhouse or the first person who was shot, a guy named uh, Joseph Rosenbaum, which one of them was the aggressor in that confrontation, the defense, and I think their position is the stronger one on the totality of the evidence, has said that uh, Rittenhouse was chased down by Rosenbaum, and that's how the altercation started. Uh, the, the government, the state, uh, put in a, a kind of a dubious blow-up recording from which they tried to infer that Rittenhouse may actually have been the aggressor. And I think what the jury wanted to see was all of that um, relevant video. So does that tell us anything or not really? Well, it tells us that, you know, to the extent that um, the deliberation is moving along, um, we haven't heard from them for a long time, and that isn't really that unusual in a case where they already have the judge's instructions, the legal instructions, back in the um, in the jury room. And this is mainly a trial where the main issue was a legal issue, and you wouldn't expect that they'd ask for a lot of readbacks of testimony and the like. And here, to the extent that there really is an issue about uh, self-defense, that's basically what it is. And it's either there or it isn't on the basis of the video. So it seems to me like it's a pretty rational uh, analysis, at least when we can tell from the outside. Andy, there's been some criticism of the instructions given to the jury as they set forth in this process of deliberation. Uh, you know, 36 pages or something like that, a lot of jury instructions. Some people have said, you know, the judge railing against the media and that sort of thing uh, might be inappropriate. Have you seen anything unusual to your eye on those fronts? Well, yeah, I don't think the the jury instructions are, to me, you know, pretty 
ordinary in terms of their length. I've been in cases where the jury instructions are much, much longer, and I think they're appropriate to the to the purpose. I do think the judge is making a big mistake, Guy, in you know continuing to obviously be catchy about the criticism that the the trial and the participants of the trial have gotten in the media. You know, I've I always kind of tuned out the media while I was on trial. You really, the kind of hours that you're working, you don't really have a lot of time to consume it in anything like a comprehensive way. And he keeps um, complaining that, you know, legal analysts and journalists are writing things and reporting things and analyzing things about the trial that he, where he thinks they're just wrong and they don't have their facts right. You know, that, mm-hmm. y- you can't worry about that as the, as the trial. And I just think he, as the trial judge, and I, ju- I just think he's worrying too much about, you know, how he's perceived. Um, he'll yeah, be too touchy. fine if, if they get the, you know, get the case over with. That's what they need to do. Andy, I know that sometimes this waiting game, especially in a trial that is this heated and has people all, you know, up in arms on both sides and that sort of thing. Everyone is just trying to find any little nugget or glimmer of something that might give them a sense of the time frame here or which way the winds are blowing in the jury room or what have you. You have a piece up today, National Review, I believe, where you talk about what to make of this, how to make sense of things, just some rules of thumb. Maybe if you would, walk us through a couple things uh, that you make uh, the argument on behalf of in this piece and as those overall pieces of guidance relate specifically to the Rittenhouse trial. Well, thanks for that, Guy. I think the main thing is people need to realize that the jury's perception of how the case has gone is very different from what we who consume it in the media have, because in some ways they're more tuned in because they've been there for the whole trial, so they know all the little nuances of evidence that have probably escaped the attention of us uh, media consumers. At the same time, they're not privy to a lot of things that we are, like the public debate that's gone on. Uh, They weren't in the courtroom for a lot of the judge scolding the, the prosecutors. So I just caution people that just because you think you have a firm idea based on what you've heard reported doesn't mean your perception matches up to the jury's. I wouldn't expect there to be a lot of jury notes because, again, it's mainly a case that comes down to uh, a legal dispute more than anything else. Uh, And I think, finally, that um, the lesser-included offenses, which were a big argument at the end of the uh, of the case about whether they'd be included or not the the government asked them for them to be included which means they think they're behind and they're offering something that the jury could confer uh, could uh, compromise on uh, and still get a conviction i don't think they're very relevant if it's a if it's a fairly quick deliberation because uh self-defense is a complete defense to all of the charges. So whether they're the greater charges or the lesser included ones, if he had a valid self-defense claim, then uh, he should be acquitted. But the longer the deliberation goes on, the more you have to wonder whether having those counts in the indictment gives the jury something to to uh, compromise on. Somewhere because to land. If it goes on for a long time, it's either a hung jury or a compromise verdict. 
you said fairly quick. What would be fairly quick in a case like this in terms of, uh, you know, a jury deliberation? And what would then start to become, okay, this is, this is getting long. And then follow-up question, if it does start to feel long in the deliberations, does that traditionally favor the defense? To my mind, this is getting long um, because it's, uh, you know, obviously it depends on the case. And in this case, you know, it's, it's a few counts. It's a pretty straightforward uh, factual situation. The guy either has a self-defense defense or doesn't. Um, and this is like two full days of deliberation now. I just wonder how long you can, you know, chew that over in an in a effective way. So I, I think it's starting to get long now. I would say, Guy, if it gets into tomorrow, um, you know, you really have to start thinking about whether there are people there who are, uh, you know, holding out against Dug the majority in. and that you might get a, a uh, hung jury. Well, if there's a hung jury, and I know we're getting way ahead of ourselves, but it, it's a possibility, of course, especially if you've got, you know, it could be deadlocked. It could be a, a handful of holdouts in either direction. Based on your experience as a prosecutor, and this thing's, you know, let's say it drags out and you start to, you know, daydream or, you know, waking nightmare. You start thinking about, okay, what if there's a mistrial, hung jury, mistrial? What does the state do in terms of making decisions about whether or not to try the prosecution again? Does the breakdown of the jury matter? Like, let's say it's you know, 11 to 1 or 10 to 2 for acquittal. Does the state take that into consideration when they're deciding whether to go to another trial, or you know, if let's say it's ten two in the other direction, they're, they're getting close to a conviction. Does that increase the likelihood that they retry this case? And again, this is this is way premature, but I'm just curious based on your experience. Should that you know, you've got guilty, not guilty, and then door number three. If door number three gets opened, then what? Uh, all of that matters, guy. If they think they took their best shot, and the jury would say eleven to one or ten to two to acquit. Um, then that sort of counsels against bringing the, the case again because it's not going to get better for the prosecution the second time around, especially after the defense has seen your whole case. And the other factor mm-hmm. here, Guy, that's a little bit eccentric compared to you know the usual situation of a hung jury is you're going to have a serious pending post-trial motion for an acquittal, uh, for a dismissal of the indictment with prejudice, because the defense is claiming uh, some pretty significant uh, constitutional and discovery violations. And if the court... And that would be up to the judge? Yeah. And if they find that the... Well, you could appeal that if if he threw it out on those grounds. But if the court were to find that the prosecutors committed misconduct, um, you know, that would argue, obviously, against trying to... They may not even be able to bring the case again. You could dismiss it with prejudice. When you used to try cases, and you did some pretty heavy ones, what is this like? I would imagine it would be excruciating, just the waiting, how much time and energy and passion you've poured into something. Both sides, right? The prosecutors here, the defense attorney, of course the defendant, the loved ones involved. But from your perspective as one of the, you know, the, the lawyers, one of the litigants in this trial, in a criminal trial, tell us about your experience with the waiting. It's the worst part 
I, I want to say it's the worst part of my life, Guy, but I, 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 that would probably be an <laughs> overstatement. But the thing is, you know, at the end, when you finally get to the end of a trial, like if I had to give, for example, the, the government's rebuttal summation in the Blind Shea case, like I, like I did, um, in my whole life as a lawyer, I was probably never sharper, and I had been on trial for, uh, you know, 10 months, so I was used to a situation where if something went wrong, I could address it. You know, the, I, I felt like I was in some control of the situation. And in order to give the, you know, the last summation, uh, I had to be in complete command of what all the facts were. And I was as suited up and ready to go as I ever was. And then, like, it's like five minutes later, the jury has the case. And even though you're on a pace where you used to be working like 18-hour days and addressing every little problem that comes up, suddenly it all stops. And you're not, you're not in control of anything. And it doesn't matter anymore what you think or what you do. It's, it's all completely up to those 12 people. And right, out of your control, you, out of your you, hands. Yeah, and you try to occupy yourself with other things. Like I would, I would bring a stack of um, opinions from the Court of Appeals so I could catch up on what was going on while I was on trial. And I'd, read, I'd do the usual thing, you know. I'd read a sentence or I'd read a paragraph and I'd put it down and I'd say, what did I just read? And I wouldn't be able to tell you. You know, you just it's a very hard time when you're you know, your mind is very active and then you hit that wall where there's really nothing but downtime. And last question, Andy, a lot of Americans were watching large portions, if not the entirety of those closing statements from both sides in this case, in the Rittenhouse case. Obviously, there's a lot writing sometimes, not, not always. Sometimes juries have made up their mind much earlier on. But if there's, if there's any chance to go one way or another at the very end, the closing argument obviously is a culmination. How much strategic thought is put into what to highlight, what to use that valuable time uh, you know, to, to argue and to put right in front of the juries one last time? How much explicit... Uh, sort of not just preparation but rehearsal is done for that potentially all important close yeah it, it it's um a lot of preparation goes into it but interestingly guy the you know the hardest part is to for the prosecutor at least is to get up at the end without much preparation and rebut the defense summation now you know i i should say that you know pretty much what, you know, you've been in the trial for the whole trial, so you know what their defense is, and you know sort of what you're going to say. But you're still in a position of, of getting right on your feet after they sit down and reacting to what they've said. And I think in this trial, one of the things I was a little critical of was I thought the prosecutors who gave the rebuttal summation were, were really rambling. You know, they kind of went through, the, the lawyer who gave it went through his list of things that uh, had come up, and it was like he's reading his notes to the jury. I always think with that, especially since it's, it's a great opportunity to have the last word with the jury, you want to think of like three or four really strong arguments that you have for the outcome that you want. Uh, put them as punchy right. as you Hammer. can, and then sit down, because the, the, the jury's been sitting there listening to lawyers talk for five hours. And that was after listening to the judge outline legal principles for an hour and a half. They're spent. So make an impression, and every, every extra second that you're on your feet, you're probably hurting yourself. 
Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, author of multiple best-selling books, including most recently Ball of Collusion. You can follow him at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter if you are so inclined or if you're on that platform. Andy, we really do appreciate I know you're uh, juggling a lot of things today, multiple trials, multiple shows. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks so much, Guy. Andy McCarthy on The Guy Benson Show, live from Florida, and the Patriot Awards. We will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show. We're back. We didn't cover this story yesterday, but it seems like a fairly significant one. There was a thwarted terrorist bombing in the U.K., in Liverpool, England, just days ago. And it was all thanks to a quick-thinking vigilant taxi driver taxi driver picked up a young man who asked to go to the women's hospital the local women's hospital and i guess the cab driver intuited something was off with this guy and started getting very nervous about what might happen and just made a decision to get near the hospital then hop out of his own taxi locking the doors So his passenger couldn't get out, and he just started to run. That's how scared he was of what this guy in the back seat might have planned. And it turns out he was right to be scared because his passenger was a suicide bomber who detonated his explosive. And there's video footage, CCTV footage, of the explosion. This guy blew himself up in the taxi. The driver, who likely saved a lot of lives was knocked unconscious because he was still pretty close, but he has survived. And it appears that the the only death, the only casualty, was the bomber himself. It's quite a story, very dramatic, and it turns out that the suspect had been in the U.K. now for a number of years. He was Syrian. He came seeking refugee status or asylum status. To try to game the system, according to British authorities, he feigned a conversion to Christianity. To try to, you know, ingratiate himself with the new culture and sort of put on a front. And then he did this, and it could have been a lot worse. That is not meant to demonize asylum seekers or Syrians, but vetting matters a lot. And loopholes in the system do exist. And I know the Brits are going to be reviewing this case very closely, as they should. A close call. Yikes. Guy Benson Show coming back. Final hour. Tucker Carlson will be here. Stay with us. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour on this Wednesday on the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. We are live in Hollywood, Florida. The Patriot Awards are tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, foxnation.com. That's the exclusive home for the Patriot Awards tonight. You should watch. And it's exciting. As you might be able to hear in the background, the crowd is in. 
and they are loud. Thousands of them will be in the auditorium to my left here in just a few hours. It's going to be really, really exciting. Our website here at the program, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free. And the happy hour is sponsored, as always, by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink. It's really good. (laughs) Refreshing. It is delicious. You've got to try it. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they're sold near you. Expanding all over the place. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. Well, I'm joined now, sitting right next to me, by someone that perhaps you've heard of, if you're a Fox fan. Tucker Carlson is host of Tucker Carlson Tonight. Weeknights, 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Also, Tucker Carlson Today and Tucker Carlson Originals at Fox Nation. You can find out more at foxnation.com or tuckercarlson.com. You're very busy. They have you doing many things, Tucker. I can't believe I'm on a show sponsored by a Finnish booze company. That is the coolest thing that's oh. ever happened to me. Well, I'm, I'm glad that we can be a part I of I love it. Finland. I'm actually part Finnish, and the Finns know booze. I they do. They, <laughs> yeah, they do. And, and this has been the most popular alcoholic beverage there for like 70 years. It's <laughs> like Guinness that. is to Ireland as long drink is to Finland. And they sponsored the show, and it's really good. That it's, is so, it's such a great country. It's a, wonder, it's a wonderful country, I think. I want to start with just some, like, almost shop talk, because whenever I'm out and meeting people and chatting with Fox viewers around the country when I'm traveling – Many times people ask about you. Oh, Tucker, what's he like? You know, his show, it's been such a huge success. It got me thinking, because you've been in this business for a while now. You've been at CNN, Crossfire. 26 years. The Bowtie Days and MSNBC, of course, and at Fox. Different roles here at Fox. Yeah, yeah. And now this primetime show that has just been like a rocket ship, this massive success. Not taking anything away from your prior successes at other networks and other shows, what is it about this show that you think has catapulted it to the level that it is? What's unique about it? Well, I don't have any sense of, you know, I'm, I'm the least self-aware person in the world by design. I think self-awareness leads to self-obsession, which leads to self-pity, which leads to misery. So I, I really try not to think about myself. Um, but if I'm being completely honest about it, I think it it's pretty simple. Like, I've hosted a lot of shows on multiple networks, and it really depends on the network. You know, if you're hosting a, a show on a channel that nobody watches, then nobody's watching. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you host a show on Fox right now and speak to relevant issues, you can't but help get a big audience. And that's kind of so I'm not being falsely modest, I'm being sincere because I, I've lived it. I think it really has a lot to do with, you know, the eight PM show on Fox is just an amazing piece of real estate. Um, I, I know that personally I'm fifty two, so I've really kind of run out of any interest at all in what liars say. So, for example, 20 years ago, if someone had ever called me a white supremacist, I think I would have been paralyzed with horror because that's an awful thing to call someone. It's an awful thing to be, and I'm, of course, not. But now I real, I've realized, just having grown older, that, like, the people saying that don't mean it at all, you know? The first time someone called me that, I went on TV and said, no, actually, you know, I'm, I've got really pretty liberal racial views. I think we're all the same. Everyone's created by God. I'm a Christian. I think we have identical value, and I really mean that, and I do think that. And so I hope this clears it up. He's a white supremacist. And that's when I realized they don't care what you say. No, there's no they're, point in clearing you know, There's up. no point, right? So the only reason they're saying that is in order to control you through fear. And I'm just old enough that I'm not at all afraid. I know exactly who I am. I have weaknesses. That's just not one of them. Now, if they call me out of one of my weaknesses, if they're like, wow, like what? I don't know. We notice that you gain and lose 50 pounds a year. Like maybe you could get your you know, snacking under control. That would probably hurt my feelings a little bit because that's totally real. <laughs> What's what's your worst like guilty pleasure oh, snack? Shit. I mean, I, you know, I'll eat anything bad. 
Um, I think partly it's, well, it's just a lack of self-control or, you know, I write a lot, you know, that's essentially my job is to write. And so I think when, you know, you're totally absorbed in writing something every day, you kind of give yourself permission in a very self-indulgent way to eat crappy food and that's whatever. I mean, it's just, and part of it is just, just laziness, you know, rather than make a meal or go find a meal. You know, if someone were to put a bunch of Fig Newtons in my house, I'd probably eat them. It's like, here they are. Right. So, 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 but that's like an actual fault. Or sometimes I get mad. You know, I have a temper. That's a totally fair criticism, and I take that seriously. But the other criticisms that are not real at all, they're not even close to real, I sincerely don't care. I just don't care. So that's a strength. If you don't care... And you, that means you can't, they don't have a leash on you. Like, they, they're not controlling but you. But they try, of course. And there's this whole almost cottage industry. There's a whole group of people devoted, seemingly, to criticizing you and trying to get you fired and canceled every day. Do you ever think about them when you're planning the program, like, even to give them middle fingers on a nightly basis? No, or do it's you not funny. Think it's about funny. Them? If you knew how cut off I was by design, I don't think anyone would actually really believe it. But I just, I lead a very different kind of life. You know, I'm not interested in participating in that. I don't like the internet. I think technology is, for the most part, poison. I'm for MRIs, you know. <laughs> okay. I'm for chemotherapy. But in general, technology has not liberated us. It's enslaved us. And it makes people unhappy. And it divides them from each other. And I just don't participate. You know, I don't like the internet at all. And I don't go there. I don't do social media. I hate social media. So how do you build a nightly show? If you're cut off to Through some text extent. text message. Through text message. With, with your team? No, 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 with hundreds of people. So I get daily texts from probably a couple hundred at least people I know around the country, world really, who I've known for a long time, who've got good judgment, who are in different worlds, living different kinds of lives, who send me stuff. And that's the primary way that I understand the world. And it's almost like having a team of course. I know it sounds very weird, but it's 100%. Ask anybody who works with me. It's true. And, um, and, I, and then in my private life, I really try and read books. I don't I, I think the internet is so misleading it gives the Google gives the illusion of access to knowledge when in fact it's a tightly constrained world constrained by people with the worst possible motives you know so if you want to understand what's happening in the world read history and I, I, I do I mean I have a lot of faults but I do read every day book you know actual like paper they're made out of paper you put I've them heard on your of chest <laughs> so that's what it's so, so like I have no sense of it so the only time I ever get any sense of it is, on, you know, if I go into public with one of my kids and someone starts screaming at me, I'm like totally baffled by it. Why are you mad at me? But apparently there is quite a bit of opposition to our show, but none of it ever filters down to me at all. I, and last thing I'll say is sure. I listen very, very carefully to the negative opinions of people I respect and trust. So it's not that I'm impervious to criticism. I take it very seriously. If my wife thinks I've done something wrong, man, I brood about it because I really care. I've been married 30 years. I really care what she thinks. My children, close friends, I have a couple producers who I'm very close to personally. I listen very carefully to them. So, But I, what I don't do is listen to people who aren't speaking in good faith, who are stupid or unwise or whose own lives are demonstrably disastrous. Like, why would I care what they think? Do or you, like malignant on purpose. But they, they just have no demonstrated record of success. So, like, would you buy real estate from a homeless guy? Would you invest with Bernie Madoff? No. Then why would you take personal life advice from someone whose personal life is in disarray? Like, I would never do that because I'm not an idiot. So I listen to people who are impressive, and there are a million people I know who are more impressive than I am, and I listen very carefully to what they say. Um, but I'm absolutely not going to listen to, like, CNN. Why would I care what they say? I just I literally don't care. You and I appeared on Gutfeld briefly together because you were having a debate, a formal debate, with Greg about 
who the dumbest person on CNN was. Yes. And you had a very strong opinion on that. There was another network mentioned at one point and another uh, anchor these days at that network. And I believe you went out of your way not to mention her name. I will. You don't have to. But Nicole Wallace yesterday referred to or compared our network, Fox News, to terrorists. And yeah. I wonder, you can you can engage with her or not, but with this wildly overheated rhetoric. I right. mean, what drives that? Do, do they believe it? Are they angry that we're Well, I haven't even seen or? Nicole. I've known Nicole for, you know, more than 20 years. Nicole, when I knew her, was called Nicole Devinish, and she was a flack. She was a, you know, a, a spin person. She worked for Jeb Bush, who was then governor of Florida, and she was his, what do they call it, communications director or something. So people like that, you know, have their merits, have their values. They're not all evil or anything, but the, their job description is lying. They lie for a living. They'll say what they're told to say. They'll say what they have to say. They're not involved in even the theoretical pursuit of truth. And I don't think that she has changed her orientation ever since. Like, whatever drives Nicole Wallace. I mean, I find her unusually venomous and lacking credibility and repulsive, actually. But that's just a gut reaction that I have because I've known her for so long and I respect her so little. But that whole category of people is really shocking to me. Look, you're on TV, okay? People, some percentage are taking you seriously. I, in my show, I'm afraid of what's happening in a lot of ways to the country, and I say that. And I know that that probably freaks people out. But I really try not to make people more afraid than I think is warranted. Last night, for example, we did a piece on the riots of the summer of 2020, and we have a lot of footage of those riots. Mm -hmm. And some of that footage is so shocking, and I'll being blunt with you, so racially divisive that we don't put it on the air at, at my request because I don't, it's real, but I don't want to give people the impression you that think this it's too is much. some hellscape. It's too much. And television is such a powerful medium. You can really evoke heavy-duty emotion in people. Television is not about conveying facts. It's about conveying feelings, emotion. So you should pause before you whip people into a frenzy. You really should. I don't always, and that, that's my fault, and I should, but I try to. Someone like Nicole Devinish, who has no record of achieving anything in her life. Like, Nicole, what's the sum total of, of Nicole Devinish's or whatever she's calling herself now? Like, she's just not an impressive person. So in place of actual achievement, she tries to be as extreme as she possibly can. I think in this moment, that's a moral failing. I mean it. Hmm. Let me ask you about a poll that I just saw, and it's interesting because what you do often on Tucker Carlson tonight and today and all the Tucker Carlson's yeah. is you will sometimes broach topics that others don't or won't. Yeah, right? of course. And, and something that has been discussed, and you know this, whispered about a lot, especially in D.C., is the health and the mental fitness of President Biden. Yeah. Now you have major pollsters actually asking questions I about know. it. And this Politico story has it's a 46-48 split. Is the guy uh, mentally sharp, or the exact term was mentally fit for the job, with 48% of plurality saying, no, he's not. It's interesting to see that conversation, which was very hush, sort of off-limits for quite some time, starting to bubble up a little uh, bit more openly. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Well, I'm so divided internally on the subject. I have such mixed feelings about it because, yes, he is going senile, obviously. And that, But just to tell you, I know that I've known Joe Biden for 30 years. I always liked Joe Biden, for whatever it's worth. Very warm person. Never agreed with him, but I never hated him at all. I always liked Joe Biden. I know a bunch of members of his family, and I some a couple of them very well. And I knew for a fact that the cer certain members of the family were very concerned about his cognitive ability. They didn't expect him to get the nomination. Nobody did. 
and he got it, and they were freaked out about it. That's I'm not speculating. I know that for a fact. So I knew that the family believed he was in cognitive decline. So there's that, and that's news. That's news. On the other hand, I'm a human being. I'm 52. Like I hope I make it to 78. I think there's nothing sadder than someone losing his mind. I think that's that way. I've seen it with relatives. Of right? course, right. people you really love. Yeah. I respect old people. That's the other thing. I just instinctively respect old people. They've well, been around longer. I aspire to be yeah, old. Exactly. Day, right? Thank you. Nicely put. I aspire to be an old person. And so to mock a man's senility is like, I'm not going to do that. I probably have because I've violated <laughs> a lot of my principles in the heat of the moment. But I try not to. I don't want to be that guy. I want to treat old people with respect, even if I you know, abhor what they're doing. And so I'm not coming out every night saying he's a vegetable. Well, first of all, he's not a vegetable, but he is in decline. Look, pull up tape from Joe Biden four years ago. It's a totally different man. So everybody knows it. I would just say as a political matter, I felt that his obvious, whatever you want to call it, the fact he was slowing down was one of the reasons he got elected because he seemed Mm non-threatening. So he might be a little punchy. He's clearly not in his game. Whatever you, you know, however you want to describe that. kind of safe, normal. Safe. Thank you. That's the word. Safe. And I got that. I totally understood that. I know why people voted for Biden. I definitely do. I'm not mocking them for voting for him. They were exhausted by Trump. They're not ideological. They didn't think about the ideas that Biden represents or that Trump represents. They're just like, Trump is freaking me out. I need to get to something calm. And that's why they voted Biden. I understand it. What, what we didn't understand is that Biden would be immediately taken over and used as a vessel by people who really have a hard ideological agenda that is... Yeah. How, how safe is it feeling right now? Not at all. And... You know, if Biden had come in and done things I disagree with, raised taxes or kept troops in Syria, I would have complained about it because I don't agree with those things. However, I wouldn't have been afraid, you know, if he had made good on his promise to try to unite the country, not demonize whole segments of the population on the basis of their VAC status. You know, the worst thing that Biden has done in office so far is that press conference where he said, we're running out of patience for you people who haven't had the vaccine. Really? First of all, People who are vaccinated, according to Pfizer's own numbers, are not living longer than people who aren't vaccinated. In fact, according to the Pfizer's, they're living a little shorter. They also are, according to the actual studies, slightly more likely to pass on the virus. So, like, I'm not saying there's no benefit to the vaccine. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is there's no basis upon which to demonize people who haven't been vaccinated and blame them for the freaking pandemic. That's totally evil that he did. That was totally evil. Talk about dividing the country. That's the worst thing I've ever seen a president do. I'm still mad about it. And no one wants to talk about the vaccines because, like, you don't want to be an anti-vaxxer. Well, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I've had a million vaccines. I'll probably have many more. My kids have had vaccines. But that is wrong. That is totally wrong. You cannot force people to take medical treatment against their will, period. Period. Not in this country. Because why would we stop with corona? What about HIV or tuberculosis or, you know what I mean? Like, this is insane. And everyone's afraid to say it's insane. I'm not afraid because I'm, I, I don't care. It is insane. But you're not afraid to say many things. But that's just, that's truly nuts. And we're going to wake up one morning and be like, I can't believe we lived through that. Why didn't we say something? It was all a dream, except <laughs> it wasn't. We're living it here at the Patriot Awards in Florida. It's good to see you, Tucker. Thanks for dropping by. Like, you got me all bullshit. spun up, Guy Benson. And as I was going to like wind him up and let him go. But we have a break. <laughs> Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson tonight, every weeknight, 8 p.m. Eastern Fox News Channel. Good to see you, sir. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, man. Super fun. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. It's the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show, live from Florida and the Patriot Awards tonight. A lot there from Tucker. 
Wow, you can go back, listen to the podcast if you missed it. We'll put it up on YouTube as well. Here's the thing. Tucker is a fascinating guy. I disagree with him on some stuff, right? Some of the stuff on vaccines and COVID, I don't agree with him. January 6th, some of that, I don't agree with him. But we can have these conversations, do so in a sort of cheerful, respectful way. And that's fine. I think that's what we should do in America. I'll also say he has been incredibly, and this is the way he is, he is very, very personable, very kind. For example, my in-laws are huge fans of his. And they met him a couple years ago, and he, and this is often what he does, he treated them like they were the only people on earth, just dialed in, and just got such a kick out of it. My in-laws did. It was just, it was amazing. So it was fun to have him here, especially with, I mean, you should have seen the crowd that gathered just because he's here. I mean, he's got such a following. So... A memorable interview, certainly, here on the Guy Benson Show with Tucker. Maybe we'll get him back sometime soon. He's a busy man doing a lot of things, as we pointed out. I will also highlight, coming up tomorrow, we have just confirmed at the top of the show, Christine, top of the show tomorrow, Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican Kentucky. He will be here. I really want to talk to him about this spending spree that the Democrats are going to attempt. And he's seen a thing or two. And I'd imagine he has some thoughts. So Mitch McConnell on the Guy Benson Show tomorrow. Also coming up next here in the flesh, Tom Shalhoub, our Fox News colleague. He's the warm-up act tonight. Get everyone laughing and not that they need to get fired up. I mean, people are stoked to be here. He'll tell us all about that, plus his impressions. That's straight ahead on the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are back live from Florida as we are getting ever closer to the Patriot Awards on Fox Nation. That's the only way to watch tonight live, 8 p.m. Eastern. It is going to be a party. And there are a lot of folks here. There's a bar or two, I understand. So it's going to be a fun crowd, I think, tonight. And the man who is charged with getting them in the right mood and headspace and and feeling a little raucous, maybe uh, some laughs, is my next guest, Tom Shalou, comedian, author. You can see him on Gutfeld regularly. He'll be warming up the crowd tonight at the Patriot Awards. He joins me here uh, up on, the, I guess, the, the second floor in this theater. And it's great to see you, Tom. You too, Guy. And uh, I'm excited to do stand-up. I told them in my intro, I said, make sure you introduce me as stand-up comedian Tom Shalou because I think a lot of this audience knows me from Gutfeld, but they don't know I do stand-up. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want them to be surprised that I, I'm launching into material. Couldn't it be a pleasant surprise? Uh, yeah, but... Like, as long to, as you don't bomb. Yes, but I have done gigs before where it, it takes a while where they're like, why is he... You What's know, he doing? Yeah, why, they think I'm an MC and they think, oh, okay, he's opening with a joke. Oh, he's doing another joke. Why does he? Why is it, doesn't he stop telling There's jokes a fourth and get on joke. with the show? Yes. So I want them to know it's stand-up comedy, so... Anyway, well, we'll, that's we'll spread my job. the word. Yeah, and I'm not going to be on the broadcast. It will be, it's for the audience. The so. in-person, in yes. in-house audience here. Yeah. So, how long do you have? And I mean, do you want to do you want to give us any sense of where you're going? Well, thematically, it's, it's ten minutes, and it's a little bit of a romp down memory lane. I talk a lot about growing up in the '70s. It's some of the material was covered in my book, but. Uh, you know, it's... Mean Dads for a Better America. Mean Dads for a Better America. I talk about my dad a lot in my act. Um, but, you know, let's face it. It's not that great. It's not that funny. But it's just <laughs> funny enough. 
so that it's just going to get this audience going, you know? I get a feeling like if I was going to destroy the audience, uh, I don't think they'd have me. They'd say, why? Well, you know, he's going to tire them out. They're going to be, you know, rolling. They want, to, they want to go up from me. So the Patriot Awards, after me comes Pete Hegseth. Right. right, so they, they need you to be acceptable. Yes. Like mediocre to fine. Yeah, I mean, that's been and you my think whole you can career. Hit, you can hit that. Are you kidding? That's that what I'm made of. I mean, it's like <laughs> my whole career, like this is when I was running around doing commercials. You know, how do you get a career in commercials? It's a, it, it pays well. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's good. It's, it's, it's a union job. What's you know? your favorite commercial you ever did? A Snickers, probably. Snickers. And what, was, what was your role? In well, it? Were you the hungry guy? Well, you, you remember Snickers had people trying to do things, and then when, when they failed, they would have a Snickers, you know, like... It was like a consolation prize yes. for themselves. Okay. So I was, I was um, a bald man. I had a, a bald pate on my head, and then I was trying to force hair to grow out of my head using only my sheer force of will. Oh, I see. And then finally, like I clenched so hard, yes, that one strand pops out of my forehead. People might remember this. because I do a remember classic this commercial. Snickers. The hair pops out of my head, and then I'm so happy that I, 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 Snickers satisfies. You know, I can take a break and have a Snickers. Oh, almost like a celebratory Snickers, yes. having sprouted your single hair. Yep. And yep. that was your favorite commercial to have done. I think that was, yeah. So, stand-up comedy, obviously, is, is a very different beast. How do you get a sense when you're up there? Because this, this is thousands of people. Yes. Right? Big, I remember big room. I was a warm-up act years ago for an event, actually, with Sarah Palin, similar-sized crowd. I was very nervous. I mean, that oh, yeah. many people, wow. And they're, they were like, oh, warm them up, get them fired up, and be funny. It's like, oh, God. You know, like, you, wow. How, how do you do this? And I was a little tentative, but the first joke hit. Yeah, and you could—I couldn't even see the crowd because it was you know this bright light, but I could hear just sort of the ripple yeah. of laugh and your and, and laughter, and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, like for me it kind of melted away and I leaned into it. Yes. When do you know if it's working? Well, that's the thing is I would that is a very tense situation that you were in because what you wrote a joke for the occasion, right? Yes. I mean, I don't want to do that with stand up. That's the whole great thing about it is that it's like. It's like being in a cover band. You know the songs already uh -huh. that people like. So when you go to play, play the, the bar or whatever, you play the songs everybody likes, and you get a set list, and then it, it, it's always going to work at whatever level it does, but it's always going to be successful. And so with stand-up... No, no one's, like, no one's going to, like, boo Jesse's girl. Yes, right. And that's my act is like Jesse's girl. So I basically... I do material that I've done before. I'm not doing it, trying any new jokes with this crowd. Okay, no innovation I come here. out, I do the act. It's what I do in comedy clubs. It's what I do when I open up for Gutfeld. And the act changes year to year, but basically the material I'm doing tonight, I've, I just did it with Greg in Birmingham at a big theater. So I kind of know where I want to go with it. You know? right. it's, it's, it's something of a comfort zone because it's tried and true yep. in this case. You mentioned Gutfeld. Uh, you appear on that show a lot. Yeah. You do some impressions. Yes. Talk about the creative process as a comedian of deciding that you want to do an impression yeah. and then figuring out how the hell to do it and honing it so it's actually not terrible. Yeah. Well, if good, not really good. I mean, the good thing about Gutfeld is that we're limited. I think that's always the way that so much of the Gutfeld humor comes from its limitations. We don't have a huge budget. We're not like The Tonight Show with right. like a staff of 35 writers or whatever. It's just a group of people. You know, it's like five or seven people like putting this whole show together. So when I do, I did Adam Schiff for a while. Adam Schiff, I would shoot it on my phone 
And all I did was put a little rouge on my cheeks, and then I bugged out my eyes, yeah, the and eyes. I shot it on the phone, right? So it was easy, and I could do it and then send it in. And then if the stories changed, they'd say, oh, no, we're not doing this, that angle. We're going to do this. I could do another one. You know what I mean? It wasn't like the way that you would have to go in for hair and makeup and then do a script. It's loose. So he sends me an idea. I write something. I film it with Joe Biden. Right. I wanted to ask you about the Joe Biden impression. Joe Biden. People come up to me all the time and they say, how long does it take you to get the makeup and everything on? There's no makeup. <laughs> There's no makeup. I'll show it to you. The, the radio audience won't be able to see this. I'll try to describe it. Because this is, this is what Snapchat. we do here with, with Snapchat, the spoken word. Right? Yes. You open up Snapchat. You put on the old man filter. Oh, yeah. The filter. Come on, man. See that? Yeah. It turns my hair white. It wrinkles my face a little. And all I have to do is to squint. <laughs> yeah, that's that's and pretty good. I have it. That That's pretty Biden-y right there. Yeah. And so then what, what verbal text, like what, when you do the impression, what are your go-tos to be like sort of the signals, like this is Joe Biden? There- well, it's a series of tricks. You know, I'm not that great of an impressionist, but neither were the greatest impressionists of all time. Like Dana Carvey. His famous impression of George H.W. Bush, if you look at it, it sounds nothing it's like... It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. But it's hilarious. It's hilarious. And yes. it works. Yes. And so I'm not a technician the way that, say, now Daryl Hammond was. Daryl Hammond's amazing. Sure. But I'm more of the, the, the Dana Carvey school. I find a few things and I exaggerate them. The squint is one of them. The come on man, mm-hmm. the the strange bursts of anger that that go into wandering uh, old man, you know, mm-hmm. and so it's I combine those things, and then for a while when I first did it, it was a series of everything Joe Biden did. He would just say, you know, uh, he'd say, uh, "You got to talk to Jen Saki, Saki, Hacky Saki, Hacky Sacks, Hacky Sacks. That's good." You know, uh, deadheads. Deadhead. He would just make one reference to another, right. and he would just, just a stream of consciousness trail off into no. So all the Joe Bidens were that. What same am I thing. doing? What am I saying? Yeah. So it it evolved. Now that we want to do more newsy things, Greg will do a news item, and then he'll send me a clip of the story, and then he'll say, "Let's see what Joe thinks." And so now I'm I'm commenting more on the news, so we can't really do that. The thing we did before, right? So it's changed. You have to roll with the punches each day. Yeah. So like. If you were Joe Biden, right, you're the president, and Gutfeld plays some clips, uh, you know, of, of the news, it's like, well, you know, Mr. President, the American people are very concerned about inflation. You just, are you are you off the top of your head responding? Are you scripting it? What do you say there? I will script, he'll send me the, the inflation, right, the, 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 the story. And then I will just start thinking about it. I, pu- I make a cup, uh, you know, I make a pot of coffee, I spin it around, and then I think about, okay, what's inflation? So I'll start doing it. And sometimes my wife and kids are home, so they hear me kind of going through it. And I'll say, inflation. Come on, what? come on, man, inflation. What? It, it's, it's, it, it's good for everybody. You know, I, I mean, I mean uh, uh, you know, uh, m- m- my son, his paintings used to sell for 200 grand. They sell for 450 grand. You know, <laughs> so I'll just throw in jokes about Hunter, and I'll try to think of the opposite. Like, inflation's bad. So what's funny, you just flip it on his head and... Okay, Joe will say why it's good. Right. So you have a setup right there. What about his weird, uh, the whispering? Yeah. Right, because it's, sometimes it's, it's these outbursts of yells and then whispers. Yes. I don't know what that is other than <laughs> I felt it was Joe Biden giving me something else to do with my impression. Oh, it was just him doing you a favor personally. Yes, because I, he, I was running out of things to do. <laughs> and then he started doing this creepy whisper, and I thought, oh, okay, I'll just incorporate that in. I said, thanks, Joe. <laughs> Fair. We asked this to Pete Hegseth, who's emceeing tonight, yeah. yesterday on the show, and he's actually just a few feet from us. 
And I asked him because it's impossible. I've been talking publicly for basically my whole career. I still get nervous for certain things. Yeah. Huge crowd. Nervous at all, or is this just like old hat? No, it is old hat because it's stand-up. It's like the... uh, But if I were presenting tonight and I had to do an intro, I would be working on it uh you know if i had to do a joke like like you said when you were doing the sarah palin thing you had a couple of fresh jokes to yeah do it. i would be nervous that they were going to work or not going to work but with the um it's almost like because i do stand up so much i mean i it, it's i've done it for muscle so long. memory you know it works yes i feel like i'm a pilot and you know i'm behind the controls i'm just going to land the plane i've done it before you know so I, i'm not nervous in the way that i was at the the previous Patriot Awards two years ago, I was presenting. I had to walk out. I had to hit my mark. Different skill set. Yep. Well, when I we're going to say goodbye to Tom Shalhoub. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to remind everyone that he is stand-up comedian Tom Shalhoub. That's right. Here on the Guy Benson Show, he will be doing stand-up comedy <laughs> to warm up the crowd here at the Patriot Awards tonight. They start at 8 p.m. Eastern Time exclusively on Fox Nation. Tom, I'd say good luck, but... Sounds like you don't need it. You've got this thing ready to go. I got it. Go rock it's it, in the Tom. pocket. Tom Shalou on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. We'll be right back with the home stretch next. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Home stretch. Wednesday edition. Guy Benson Show. Hollywood, Florida. Thanks for listening. And it has been a show. Joey Jones, Annie McCarthy, Will Kane, Tucker, Tom Shalou, and now... Producer Christine, we needed at least one female voice on this show for crying out loud. You've been very busy. Oh, have I? I thought you were going to maybe have an aneurysm getting Tucker up here. I did. I, I was worried it wasn't going to happen. Because I mentioned, I'm like, oh, that might be tough. You're like, do not give me a heart attack. I'm like, okay, I won't. It's going to work. And it did. It did. But yeah, it took... You saw the crowd that followed him. Oh, there's like, you know, dozens of people show up. And there's so many people downstairs. So. Oh, I mean, thousands. Yeah. Right? There's thousands of people yeah. here. Uh, so we, I wanted to do this story with you because it's very stupid, and I'm sure we'll have a stupid debate about it, and I think it'll be fun. I'm glad you think of me. Well, <laughs> you know what I meant. <laughs> so I saw this, uh, this game on Twitter, and I thought that we might actually, I don't know, maybe agree on this one. So here's how it goes. The instruction is you can only choose one pill. They've got different colored pills. You've got to pick one of them. The blue pill makes you immune to diseases. The red pill means that you never, ever need to use the bathroom ever again. The purple pill is that you only require half as much sleep as you currently do to like you know for peak performance so your your sleep gets cut in half so i guess you, your days are longer your productivity is a lot higher or whatever and then the black pill is you're always in shape regardless of diet and exercise so i can talk you through my thought process on this but there's also a, a, a fifth pill the green pill die instantly uh, which is i think just sort of the dark joke there let's let's eliminate die instantly uh, good idea yeah we're not interested in that here no. at the guy benson show we're just we're too busy to, to die instantly so to me it's it's one of these four immune to diseases don't need to ever use the bathroom again cut your sleep needs in half or you're always in shape no matter what you eat or how much you exercise right out of the gate i'm throwing out the bathroom thing who cares 
exactly. Like, and honestly, that's some of my best alone time. <laughs> He's in the bathroom like, <laughs> yes. no, I need. Well, especially when you have children. <laughs> it's like Close the door. Mama needs some juice on her special, special seat. Guy, don't knock it until you try it. Okay, so we're both eliminating the bathroom one. It's yes. a kind of weird one. I understand the appeal of cutting your sleep time in half and still being, like, you know, unaffected because just imagine that. Think about all those extra hours and what you could do in terms of just your life and productivity or, like, maximizing fun also. Like, I get it. That's an appeal. But And some of the most successful people in the world require very little sleep. Like, this is yes. well-known and well-documented. Some of, like, these extreme high achievers sleep three, four, five hours a night, no problem. I would be dragging. I could never do that. Oh, neither could I. So I get it, but I'm also eliminating it because ultimately it's not that important. I'm with you so, so far. So to me, it comes down to immune to, to disease or you're always in shape regardless of diet and exercise. And to me, there's a clearly correct answer and then there's the answer that I'm still tempted to take, right? I think the clearly correct answer is... You're immune from diseases, right? Because this could save your life. You could avoid cancer, for example, if you're predisposed or anything like that. This is just blanket immunity. And so you'd live a long, presumably, a long, healthy life, or at least have a, have a much better chance, at least, of, of doing so. So to me, that, that should be the no-brainer. Like, give me that blue pill. No questions asked. I'll swig down some of this water, and we're done. However, hmm. the shallow superficial person in me is awfully tempted by the black pill where I could just eat whatever I want not exercise and it wouldn't matter because I'd be in shape and by the way I'm interpreting my interpretation of this is in shape means physically fit like looking good but also healthy like in shape so it's not like I would look fine but my heart health would go to hell or anything like that I'm, I'm interpreting this as like you are in very good shape and, and looking good, regardless of food and exercise. That's a very tempting, a very tempting thing. So I, I agree with you, but I have, I have my immediate okay. pick. Because I am such a hypochondriac, we all know this. I mean, how many times did I believe I had COVID? Oh, you think that you have everything all the time. And I didn't even want to say this to you, but last week when I was out because Megan was sick... I mean, I was texting Quiet Wyatt. I was spiraling. I'm like, here we go. She has it. I know she has it. Which she didn't. No, thank God. And even if she did, she'd be fine because she's eight. Right. But, and you know this because you listen to the show every day and we talk about it. Yeah, but when I spiral, you know yeah, when I spiral, Spiraling it Christine yeah, is just, just you doesn't know. matter. So I'm going with the blue pill immune to diseases. Because you would no longer convince yourself that you had things because you would know for a fact that you don't. So, so you're going with the blue pill mm -hmm. to be immune from diseases, not to be immune from diseases no. really, but to ease your own mind mm -hmm. about having diseases that you don't have. That is a very strange way of getting to that answer, which I, I think objectively is the correct answer. It's just on brand for me, don't you think? I also feel like you would convince yourself that the blue pill wasn't working. Like, I didn't no, even think about it. I got the placebo. Placebo, I so I totally have COVID it. or whatever. That's that's the issue. Oh, man. I, I'm going to say the blue pill is what I would take. Oh, I thought you were going On for the diseases. black pill. The black pill is, after a few drinks, I might 
go with a black pill. So that's the thing. You were worried about how much you said you could eat whatever you want. I was thinking the alcohol I could have. and Because don't forget, there's so many calories. Right, you're still in shape. Yes. It's, you're, you're physically fine. I feel like you're talking yourself out of the oh. blue pill answer. We're out of time. You can let me know tomorrow if you want. Patriot Awards tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, foxnation.com. Right back here tomorrow from Chicago. Yes, more travel. It's the Guy Benson Show. Good. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.